Hi, my listeners. You are so very welcome back to our third installment. If you're with us last week, you will remember that we started the show with an overview of what we read, watched and listened to this week. So we spoke about The Crown, the most talked about series to hit Netflix. And then we touched on Claire's undying love of the Great British Bake Off. So to move that on one step further, Claire, what did you read or watch or what caught your eye this week in the world of culture? Okay, so there's been a lot of buzz about the series The Undoing. So this week I kept up with that show. I've been watching it each week. So it stars Nicole Kidman as Grace, an affluent therapist living in New York who is suddenly embroiled in a murder conspiracy involving her husband, played by Hugh Grant, and a woman she only meets at the beginning of the series called Elena, played by Matilda D'Angeli. Episodes come out once a week on Sky Atlantic, and so far it has been an incredible watch. The world that it is set in is all fancy galas and fundraisers for private schools, and it's shot so well, and the whole atmosphere of it is so moody, and there's so many secrets that are slowly being uncovered throughout the series, so if you like mysterious crime dramas, this one's for you. Okay, okay, and do you think at this stage, like, do you think there's enough of a plot for it to progress on past just the first series? Oh, def- oh, yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, there's like so much stuff to be unraveled so far and there's going to definitely be so much more content for it as well. It's a really good premise for a show. So what have you uh, watched this week or read this week, Trudy? I suppose last week what I touched on was how I had just started the fiction novel The Colour Purple by Alice Walker, which is set in rural Georgia in the 1930s. Um, you get to it. Yeah, so at that stage, I was only about a quarter of the way through that point. And so one noteworthy progression I have made since is the introduction of the character Shug Avery. And Shug is this um, blue singer. She's, you know, very free-spirited, doesn't hang around for marriage, children, like that is expected of a woman in that time period. And Celie, the protagonist I would have introduced last week, she is infatuated with Shug because Shug kind of stands for everything that Celie wishes she had the courage to stand for. So independence, a career, a life away from home and children. And so it's just really interesting at this point to see like, you know, that power dynamic play out. And I'm interested to see where that goes in the story. Yeah, but so far, like the pace, the Mm -hmm. um, plot is just all keeping up with what I first what like made me want to buy the book which is the good review so it is like you know I'm kind of giving it full rating still at this point and I have a long way to go with it too. When is the book set again? It is set in the 1930s in Georgia so rural Georgia in South America. Oh, okay okay so did you did you watch anything this week? Um, yes yeah, so I watched a short kind of documentary series that is run by the New York Times um, oh. called Op Doc. I think you know it Claire. Yeah, I think, yeah, we've definitely watched a few of those. Yeah, and it has like various short video documentaries. They're no longer than 20 minutes. And they touch on a wide variety of topics and they're mostly like, you know, within human interest, but they're really well produced. Um, Some are better than others. But the most recent one they released is called A Concerto is a Conversation. And it opens with Chris Bowers, who is a black composer and he's recently composed A Concerto. And so the kind of discourse kind of turns to Chris and his grandfather and his grandfather asks him to explain, you know, what exactly is a concerto? And he, he kind of describes it as like a conversation between the soloist and the orchestra. And then that provides like an analogy for the conversation that takes place in Chris and his grandfather. And so Chris, the um, composer, he speaks about how aware he is being black in his society. Um, and then his grandfather brings up his upbringing and how he too was so aware of his colour as a young adult. In um, He grew up in Florida. So he provided like a childhood anecdote and it kind of just went back over the years of him growing up there. And he just said that like when they would go to the local shop that was owned by a white family in town, 
a young child would refer to his father as boy and he'd ask him, you know, how can I help you, boy? And then his father would reply with, yes, sir. No, thank you, sir. You know, and so like from similar experiences, it was really interesting to see like his grandfather's story because from similar experiences like that, he decided he would move away. He would get out of South America and he hitchhiked to LA in California with $25 in his pocket, but he knew he needed to find work. And so he pretended to be a recruiting firm and he got out the phone book and he started from the A's and worked his way right down, making phone calls, seeing if different businesses or shops needed more staff. And so he was only five phone calls in when a dry cleaners rang him back and they said they were looking for a presser. And he said, oh yeah, I'll send someone around. And so it was him that showed up to, to secure the job. Like he knew from the get-go that he needed a job. So like he just pretended the whole time that he was this recruiting firm. And he met his wife there. And within two years, they bought the cleaners. And he was only 20 at this point. And like, oh it was just so interesting to see. Like this was in 1940s in America. Um, and like as much as the conversation kind of evolved into his grandfather giving um, his grandson advice and how to push through those cultural barriers, it was such an evolution to see the type of life that his grandfather had lived up until the age of 20. And then you have Chris Bowers, who from the get go, his mother and father knew the importance of like, you know, get, getting him a good education, making sure he rose to the top in all of his um, musical um, career paths. Like it was just it was such a good um, watch. And I will include it in the footnotes because it's such a good yeah. watch. Yeah, it's definitely the age for like short form documentaries like Vox and Vice. I recently watched uh, a documentary about from Vox about QAnon and how they've started adopting like, you know, uh, an inspirational post on Instagram, you know, the font and like the whole color palette. They yeah. started adopting that to make QAnon posts more like palatable for your average Instagram user. So they kind of just blend in with the rest of the feed. So it, yeah, there's definitely a lot of documentaries out there that are, that are starting to be just kind of like short, compact pieces of uh, of film. Yeah, I think like with the way it's going now, people want like these documentaries on the New York Times up docs, like they're no longer than 20 minutes long. They're very yeah. visual. They grab you like you want to stay watching. You want to follow the story. Like, you know, if that was in a different format, if that was in text format or if it was like, you know, less interactive, you, you wouldn't have this, you know, attention span for it. So the way they do it is so neat and compact and it's just, you know, they pull it off so well. Yeah, you could easily watch a few of them in like a short period of time as well. I picked up uh, Even the Olives Are Bleeding. Oh yeah, okay. The Life and Times of Charles Donnelly by Joseph O'Connor. Okay. Uh, I've I've just read the start of it now, but I'm going to definitely uh, get through it uh, by the end of maybe next week or something. But it's a biography about the elusive poet, journalist, and left-wing activist in the early part of the 20th century uh, called Charles Donnelly. He was killed fighting on the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War in 1937. And even though he's very influential in terms of poetry and in the histories of the Irish left, not really much was written about him until O'Connor decided to write the book in 1992. So the title, Even the Olives Are Bleeding, was said by Donnelly quietly before he died and now become has become like a famous line. So the book just centers on his life and how his poems were never really widely published, yet he still has such an influence in Ireland without being widely known himself. Okay, like, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, I can't wait to finish reading it. I'm I'm very like at the start of it, but it it's really interesting so far. So I'm definitely gonna get going on that. And you said it was a biography. Yeah, a biography. So it was written by uh, John O'Connor, Joseph O'Connor. Okay, and when was it released? You know, in uh, 1992. <laughs> you have all the background knowledge. All you have to do is read it now. <laughs> oh God, yeah. So 
when we speak about what we've read, watched and listened to, the first thing me and Claire kind of instantly jumped to was, well, we have to touch on, you know, the Spotify Unwrapped because that just marks, you know, the beginning of December and it kind of adds that Christmas buzz to be able to picture your musical developments over the year. So, yeah. um, Claire, do you want to give us a quick overview of who your top five artists were this year? Yeah, so I had David Bowie, then Tyler the Creator, then Frank Ocean, Tame Impala, and then Kanye West. So my number one artist of the year was David Bowie, and my number one song was Space Song by Beach House off their album Depression Cherry. I don't know what happened on the April 2nd, but it was the day I listened to it the most. So it was kind of, it's, kind of like, it's kind of a somber song. I don't know what happened on April 2nd. So, And what, what I find so strange as well about Spotify is that I listened to songs really like intensely for a while. So whenever yeah. I, I heard those songs again, I was just transported back to college. And like this year has been so long, it's so easy to forget that we were at college at the start of the year. So yeah. I really enjoy Spotify rap. It definitely does. It does bring up good memories and like, oh yeah, that's when I listened to that song. It's, it's like a nice recap of the year. Yeah, I thought the same. Like even when they were bringing up some of the songs, I was like, oh my God, I was in college when I listened to that. Like, yeah, how is that this year? So specific to like certain time periods of your life as well. So my top five artists, they were, I think we're on completely different wavelengths here, Claire. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, they were Catfish and the Bottle Man. They were my top artist. Yeah. Um, Tudor Cinema Club, Fleetwood Mac, Arctic Monkeys, and randomly Ziggy Alberts. He's <laughs> just like, thrown in for good measure, I think. <laughs> yeah, that must be with Kanye West. I didn't realise I listened to so much Kanye West, but supposedly I do. Yeah, but I think that's, that was the same as me for Ziggy Alberts. Like, I went through a stage where I just loved him over summer. <laughs> Well, he's really like kind of indie summer vibes but that was like I was like how did he get thrown in the mix there like he's on a completely different spectrum but it's just funny to see it you said your top song was by Beach House was it yeah did you um have anything for podcasts I don't think they had podcasts on the one last year I think I think that's a new feature yeah I I'm not really like I listened to a few but I definitely use Spotify more for music did you what's your top podcast I'm kind of the same. I would mostly use pod, like listen to podcasts on different platforms, but my top when I do listen to podcasts on Spotify, uh, my top one was you know the true crime series serial. Oh yeah, yeah, that was my top one. But funnily enough, I haven't even finished that yet. Like I'm only on episode nine of that, but I think it's because I um listen to it so like one after the other kind of things. That's probably how. Yeah. That but that's a really good true crime series. I'd really recommend it for anybody that's like into true crime. It's really good. So if you want to move on and get us started on I'm a Celebrity, the second weekend. Last weekend, actually, third weekend. Uh, okay, so as usual, there's really not much to say about I'm a Celebrity. So Holly, Victoria, Jessica and Beverly have all been voted out so far. And people mm-hmm. are really actually angry about Jessica that she's been voted out in like place of some of the other campmates. Yeah. So I actually thought Jessica was going to stay in it for far longer. Like she's really good energy. She's a really nice person, it seems. But I guess I was surprised that she was voted out so soon. But uh, last week they got their treats from home after they had to do a few challenges and that was a nice moment but fans were upset that Giovanna, AJ and Jordan didn't get anything from home they thought it was kind of cruel that they had to watch everybody else getting their treats and then definitely the funniest trial this week was a drinking challenge and featured Shane Ritchie and Jessica taking on like bloody liquids and vomit fruit smoothies it was so disgusting yeah. but their, re- their reactions along with that and Dex were definitely the highlight of the entire series so far like it was the best thing about the series it was so funny um so the show is actually coming to a close this week it, and it's finishing on Friday and that means that Celebrity Cyclone is coming up which everybody enjoys and I'm very looking forward to 
that's a quick recap of Irish Lively this week. But even just to touch on last night's episode in particular, like you said that you were surprised that Jessica was voted out. And to be honest, I yeah. I think Jessica was the one contestant that everybody could kind of say, yeah, she has come on tenfold, like even in terms of personality-wise and comfort zone. Like she just threw herself in there. And, you know, when she met Anton Deck after with um, Russell, isn't it? He was voted out too. Oh, yeah. Was yeah, it? like, yeah. yeah, he was, Russell was over that last night. Um, Jessica said that, like, you know, when she told her friends she's going on I'm a Celebrity, they were like, you will not last a week. And, like, it just goes to show that, like, she just proved them all wrong and she proved herself wrong. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's time for the interview segment, Trudy. Yeah, so this week, Claire and I had the pleasure of chatting to some of the cast and crew of DCU Drama um, ahead of their first Contemporary Play of the Year. So director Clara Mooney and producer Josh Moffat bring us their reenactment of Start Swimming, written by James Fritz. And it airs tonight for the first time at half seven on YouTube. And so we chatted to Hannah Louise Doherty, Connell Malloy and Owen Finnegan, who are all acting in the play this evening to see what their thoughts were ahead of the show. So, Claire, if you want to play it, and we'll take a look at how that went. Okay. Amazing. I think for me, it was um, it was the plot, I think, because um, it's just, it's such an unusual play. Like, when you see it written down, when you read the scenes for the first time, it's, it's not really like anything that either DCU Drama have put on before or that I've really seen before. So, like, that was what drew me in was the fact that it was you read the script and you still have no idea where the production team could go with it or what it's going to look like once they actually produce it. So that's really what drew me in to try and give it a go. And yourself, Owen, what was it for you? Yeah, I don't know. I suppose um, it was the opportunity to kind of try doing something completely different with drama. Like I've done things like, you know, I did their panto last year and I've done musicals and stuff before, but I've never really done a contemporary play and I saw this come up and... It was just so strange and so out there, you know, it was just a completely new experience. And yeah, that's that really like drew me in. And um, I suppose the idea of it being a contemporary play, was that different than anything you've done before? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's not like anything I've, I've, I've ever tried. Like, it's just completely different. Like, um, And yourself, Anne-Louise? Um, well, like the lads kind of have a bit more experience than I do but like I'm a first year and I haven't done drama in like years and years so this I kind of thought this would be like a mellow introduction into back into drama and it ended up being quite intense in the end but um similarly to that though like um I hadn't even realized that contemporary plays existed or something that was so open for interpretation because mm-hmm. it was nothing like anything I'd ever seen advertised or anything like that before yeah so would you say you have like a drama background or is this something you said you just dip your toes into and see how it went oh yeah totally new like mm-hmm. I've, I've had an interest i was interested as a child but like i haven't touched it since before uh, before secondary school i totally lost all my confidence in speaking and all that kind of jazz so I'm like this is just a nice way to get back into it um so what was it like auditioning online compared to an in-person audition no i think um definitely kind of scary like um but probably no more than in real life. I mean, because I, I've done auditions. I went into this like pretty skeptical. Like I didn't think it would really amount to anything for me, really. But um, you know, I went in and 
our production team, they were just, they were really friendly and uh, understanding, which was, which was good because I hadn't acted in front of like a camera before. So that was pretty intimidating and, you know, I had to stop several times just because it just didn't feel like it was working out. But um, uh, it actually, yeah, it was actually grand in the end, you know. <laughs> Yeah. My biggest worry was uh, people in my house uh, judging me, you know, listening in <laughs> on uh, me just yelling at my computer. Like, <laughs> um, and Han Louise, how did you find that one? I think do, cameras are scary. Cameras are very scary. And that's not really what you think of when you think of a play. Like, and even I had to start again twice in my audition because I was just looking at the crew, like um, all the production team was looking at me and it's literally just silence. Like, it's so awkward. There isn't the kind of, um, at least if you're, like, looking at someone you mess up in real life, you can kind of make a joke about it or kind of uh, rub it off. But um, I was so nervous. The whole recorded aspect is a bit scary. Yeah, I can imagine. Did you agree with that one, Connell? Yeah, I'd say as well. Like, it's the thing that, like, if you're either, if you're in a room doing an audition or even if you're on stage for a play, you don't feel as silly as when you're sitting in your sitting room with your webcam set up in front of you. So you're, yeah. you're almost... You almost like hold back because it feels ridiculous to do it into a camera. Whereas if you were in the room, you'd do it without even thinking about it. And you'd be waving your arms, you'd be walking all over the place. Whereas in a camera, you've got this little square and you can see yourself, which is another thing that you never usually have to do when you're auditioning. You can't openly see your face while you're doing the line. So I, I thought it was way more difficult than walking into a room with three people sitting in front of you. Yeah, looking at yourself is definitely the worst part. Because you're Absolutely. always looking yourself in the eyes and you're like, I'm... Yeah, you're your own critic. Um, so just to touch on the themes explored in the play. So um, it's kind of various aspects like power and powerlessness and freedom and resistance and revolution. So do you think the play and its themes accurately reflect the power struggle people have in today's society? So be it against like authorities or rules or obstacles in general, do you think it accurately refre reflects that? Um, yeah, I think it I think it does. And I think one of the most interesting things it does um, in terms of doing that is that a lot of the characters in the play play the role of the oppressive force sometimes. And then sometimes they play the people who are seeking their freedom. And I think what they, that's a really cool indication that of in certain positions, even though you might believe in something and you might believe in fighting against, like fighting for freedom, if you get a benefit or if there's something good happening on your end, you mightn't, then you might actually enforce those rules. And I think that's a really interesting angle. And I think that the, the production team itself kind of emphasized that more by giving certain lines to certain characters, even though they might not match with what that character is and say their own scene or the scene where they get the focus. Um, and I just think generally that that's a really interesting way of looking at uh, power struggles and power dynamics in a play. All the characters both experience being forced into doing something and experience the forcing. Like, so they will have the power and they're um, affected by that power. How it kind of explores how fine the line is between the oppressor and the oppressed. Because um, even my character is probably the most like formalist, kind of straight-laced, abiding by the rules kind of. Um, but even like she has her moments where like it doesn't work out for her. It's not always so linear that someone's the bad guy and the good guy. And it kind of explores kind of the gray area between who's in power and who isn't and who's good and who's bad in a really interesting way, I think. Yeah, the, the gray area there, it's, it's really interesting because like all the characters in the play, they all kind of have... Yeah, there's there's no good guys and bad guys as such. Like they all, they all just have really different attitudes towards um, 
the rules that govern their society. And but just like you know, some of the characters uh, are really keen to follow these rules to uh, say what they have to to uh, uh, avoid uh, oppression, and then others just are completely against it. But no matter what, they all um, they all suffer in some way, even though their attitudes are so different. So I think that's uh, really interesting to explore. Um, and who is, who do you think is your ideal audience or your target audience in this? Your target audience really is just anyone who's going to look at it and go think about this because I suppose that's what it did for me anyway as a member of the cast is it kind of made me like it raises a couple of questions about what's right and wrong and whatever it's it just is an interesting portrayal of morality and really if you're getting your audience to sit back for a moment like it's a contemporary piece and like it's not always making like linear sense like a musical would you do really want to like challenge people you know maybe push them outside their comfort zone just a little um you know again try and get them to uh, think about uh, all of this like uh, you know, right and wrong, and um, yeah, maybe they'll take something away from it. I'd, I'd be interested to see what people think of it. Yeah, I don't. I, I agree with both of them. I think it goes back to that grey area that we were all touching on in, in the earlier questions. Is that I don't think this is a play for people who are deeply oppressed. You know what I mean? I don't think that it was written to speak for or to those people. I think this play is for people who might not notice even the small ways that maybe they're doing some of the oppressing or the way that they're feeding into oppressive systems. I think that's who the play is for. And, and the same way that Alan, the same way that Hannah Louis said, that the audience is the people who are who should be challenged by it. People who are like, oh, like how does, obviously it's a very contemporary piece, um, but people who might pick up those bits and go, well, how can I relate this back to what I'm doing? Am I contributing to these systems or am I standing up where I should be standing up or uh, that kind of thing? I think that's the target audience for it. So obviously this play will be like no other. And in pre-COVID world, you would have been performing the show on campus, maybe on the Helix. So now that it is all online and it will be performed on Zoom and streamed on YouTube, how was this, how was this group challenging for you? Or have you adapted to it well? Yeah. Um... I suppose of all the plays we could have done online, this was probably a good choice since it's so, since it's such an abstract piece. So we could really um, go out there with it, do something completely new. And uh, of course, I walked into this bit skeptical about how it was actually going to work. Yeah. Our uh, production team was really great at um, figuring out how to uh, produce this, uh, to get it recorded and staged. You can't, you genuinely can't over, overstate how much work the production team have put into making this, like if they hadn't put them in that amount of work, it wouldn't be half the show that it is. And like, obviously there were challenges for us, but I think what they did made it so easy that we literally just had to show up, connect to our Wi-Fi, and go from there. You know what I mean? And that's, that's how much effort yeah. they put in beforehand and in the planning and, and, and in the setup. Uh, the setting of a play is in like this place that's void of time or space or anything else. Like there's literally no direction given about when or where this is supposed to be set. So it's kind of, if you're going to do one on Zoom, this is kind of the one to do. Okay, so usually there would be an audience if you were in the Helix or wherever. But the audience reaction and the general ambience it brings is paramount to a play. So do you think it will be challenging to deal with this aspect of the online sort of production? I guess I guess one element of it is you don't actually have to face that audience. You know, so if the audience doesn't like the lack of ambience, you're not able to see whether they like the lack of ambience or not. But I do think I think though so. that is obviously that is a drawback of not doing it in a room, not doing it physically. But I think there's benefits as well in that because it's being put out as a broadcast, there can be 
video effects and things done with the edit of the recording we're giving you to make up for the lack of, you know, sitting there and watching it live. And I think that's an opportunity that you don't often get with theater um, is to add things like music, but in a way that doesn't overtake the dialogue and you can adjust things so that it suits the recording you have rather than hoping that the actors on stage react react properly to say sound cues and that kind of thing. And I think that will add something to replace what's being taken away by the lack of in-person ambience. Connell was saying at least if someone doesn't like it and they get up and walk out halfway through like we don't have to watch them do that they can just leave the meeting or whatever they want to do um because obviously contemporary pieces they may not be for everyone with the pre-records we have more than one shot if someone misses their cue it's not the end of the world and um, production has kind of sorted it out that like we have pretty much every scene nailed to i'd say as well as we could get it because we could do multiple takes so there is kind of pros and cons of each. I agree with Hannah Louise there. It has to be, I mean, because of the recorded element, it has to be the most uh, relaxed production I've ever been part of. You know, there's none, there's none of the uh, frantic line learning or trying to get the stage set or anything. As you mentioned earlier, you just, uh, just connect in and um, say your lines and um, let them do the magic. Uh, just on that, uh, how have you dealt with the issue of like each actor having a different Zoom background and different access to props and costumes? The production team and cast uh, know very well by now that I'm a sucker for a Zoom background. But uh, I'll just uh, let you know now that I didn't actually use one in the uh, in the show. We tried to just get it as uniform as possible, like uh, and kind of in a minimalist way. So we all try and uh, we all just use like a blank white background, was as white as we could get, and then kind of wear black clothes just to kind of uh, keep it all looking sort of similar, even though we were all filming in um, eight different uh, houses in uh, different places across Ireland. The simplicity is key, very little props. Like simplicity was 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 a core of it, you know what I mean? Like the, the play in and of itself doesn't necessarily need all that much visual complication, you know what I mean? Like the script is complicated enough without having to throw other complications at you. So I think keeping it white background, as black as you can get with slight touches for the characters. Um, and also in that the characters are different, you can kind of work that into the fact that not every Zoom box in this recording is gonna look exactly the same. So there is kind of an element of, well, this whole thing isn't exactly uniform because none of these people in the play are uniform. But yeah, and I think, I think people give us a little bit of leeway on that in that they know that we have to record this with circumstances we're in, you know, we can't, we can't nail it. We can't send out cameras to to eight people to get it exactly the same. You can't do backgrounds. You can't. So I guess it's it's you just kind of have to work with what you have in, in terms of these circumstances. Because it's a contemporary play, like there isn't too much background or props or like stuff like that that we have to bring into it. It's more about kind of the the word content nearly so much. I think we tried as as best we could to get similar looking white walls in eight different houses. So how is this year compared and are you excited for this extra challenge? It, it is it has been totally different. Like it's entirely different. Um even what Owen said in terms of it 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 takes some of the stress out of it, this idea that you are pre recording it. Not that people weren't prepared, but it, it doesn't have the same that weight on your shoulders before you go out on a stage that if you mess something up badly enough, the whole thing could get thrown off and you don't get another go at it and um, so that's different but i do think it's still the same kind of a cast coming together and enjoying a thing and getting to know each other while doing the play and i think that's still the same and i am really excited just by the general idea of dc drama seeing this happening 
this whole pandemic happening and going, no, we're going to keep doing shows anyway. We didn't have to, you know what I mean? They could have taken a year off. No one would have held it against them, but you know, we didn't. And that's one of the most exciting things. And it's, it's, it's very exciting to see how people will respond to it and what it's going to look like and, and, and what it could mean for even us putting on more events in the future. Even if you don't have to put on an online event, the fact that it's now opened up as a thing that we know how to do and have a framework for, like, I think that's really exciting as well. I think I agree with uh, Connell there. It's um, it's a very different kind of excitement. Like it's no less exciting than anything I've done with a uh, DC drama before, but this is more exciting in a kind of no one's ever done this sort of way. Um, so we're just paving the way, possibly, but hopefully not more online productions next semester. Okay, so just my final question. So the eight characters in the play are nameless. What was their reasoning behind this? Do you think? so that the audience can kind of um, put their own names and faces and kind of relate characters back to maybe people they might know in real life or to things they might have felt at some point. So um, like the audience can really project onto the kind of archetypes of the characters that are there because they're so like strong in their personality that they can kind of relate to them maybe a little bit more. I think that's spot on. Like it's that they're nameless concepts. You know what I mean? If you, if you named them, it might make people imagine that these are fully imaginary characters or that they're based on, you know, a specific life. Whereas I think with this kind of contemporary show and this kind of contemporary script, there is a certain kind of uh, like nebulousness to characters. You know what I mean? They're not necessarily one person in one set time. They are beliefs and ideas and, and actions just turned into lines in a script. And I think that's, the numbering really helps with that and it helps those characters shift between being the oppressor and the oppressed and the fighters and the fought and everything else. And I think that's that's a really big part of it is not not giving them names. Okay, so that was a playback of our interview with DCU Drama. So myself and Claire had the pleasure of talking to them ahead of their first contemporary show of the year called Start Swimming. And that streams tonight at half seven on YouTube and tickets can be bought for the price of two euro and you'll be supporting a very brilliant production very brilliant production team and i can't wait to see what they come up with tonight how about you claire yeah i'm looking forward to it it's going to be great it's going to be brilliant we won't give any spoilers because um i think we already gave a very good backdrop there at the interview but yeah it's going to be it's going to be brilliant we will move on to our final segment of the show which is story of the week so claire what did you read this week that caught your eye Okay, so I decided that we couldn't get through the show without mentioning the Late Late Toy Show that was on last Friday. Did you watch it? I did, of course I did, yeah. Yeah, of course, I think everybody watched it. So from Fanagate to raising over 6 million euro for charity, the show was much needed by everyone in Ireland to bring up the morale. So my story is going to focus in on six-year-old Adam from Cork who stole the nation's heart and who said on the show that he wanted to be captain of ground control for NASA. So Sirius Murphy, who uh, is a Dublin-based artist who painted a mural of his little virtual hug for you sign on Richmond Street. It's so lovely. Um, And then he got a lot of responses from astronauts. So Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield uh, tweeted, Adam, I've been lucky enough to Capcom many space flights. He said, we should talk space together. Take care. Be good, Chris. So it was just a lovely story and the latest show was lovely this year and it definitely didn't focus on the toys as much as it usually did it just focused on like the lovely little personalities of the children so yeah I really enjoyed that 
Yeah, and I think like, I don't know if most people did this, but something I did was, you know, I, I went straight to Twitter just to kind of see the general, if everybody oh, yeah. as I did, yeah. And it was just so brilliant. Like it was such a collective feeling that everybody just felt that this year's toy show just topped all the rest of them. And I think it was the one piece of normality that we needed. Like as much as everything has been so hectic this year, like the toy show still held its rightful place and it's still... Um, you know, promised so much and it gave those promises. So I think it was the one thing we needed this year. Yeah, it was lovely. So what uh, story did you have this week? Um, So I kind of read an interview. It was with Louise O'Neill, the author. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing I always wondered about Louise O'Neill, like there's never much kind of that deep, that like kind of delves into her background or her influences. And so this was this kind of gave that and I really liked it because I love Louise O'Neill as an author you know she puts the problems and issues faces facing females in contemporary society at the forefront and especially you know at a time when addressing them is considered a bit of a taboo like she released Asking for It in 2015 and that's was kind of before the conversation around consent really gathered momentum and like at that stage it was beginning you know to grow beyond its echo chamber but the interview just gave an insight into O'Neill beyond being an author and so Louise was asked what book changed her life. And she said it was The Handmaid's Tale, which was gifted to her at the age oh, of 15. Yeah. yeah. And like she said, that book made the world just turn on the axis for her and it made her into the feminist she is today. And I actually thought that was really interesting because a lot of reviewers who read Louise O'Neill's debut book, Only Every Yours, said that it bared a striking resemblance to The Handmaid's Tale. So it's just so interesting to see how you know, she drew on that influence for her first debut novel and how it like it stood the test of time for her beyond being 15, you know, right throughout the years. Yeah, it influenced her whole career, that one book. Yeah, she also, and then she finally cited Marion Keyes as the writer who shaped O'Neill. And I just think like, you know, Claire, do you follow Marion Keyes on Instagram? Yeah, I definitely know of her, yeah. Yeah, her Instagram, she's just such like a generous giving author to younger female authors. She really kind of, nurtures them and helps them along the way like she's just brilliant um, but that was what I kind of read this week and I just I really like Louise O'Neill as an author you know she's great okay is that all we have for this week Trudy it is yeah we'll finish up with that and if you stay listening that you will catch Indie Hour the next show after us so we thank you so mm. much you can follow us along on Instagram at DCU Limelight to keep up with all our shenanigans and you can replay this, rewatch it, re-listen to it on Spotify. We'll have it up hopefully for the weekend. So if you want to kind of catch in on that interview again with DCU Drama, you can do so. See you next week. Bye-bye.